It's late November 1519, when the conquistadores are peacefully allowed into the city of Tenochtitlan. With a population near 300,000, the Aztec capital is bigger than any of its contemporary European cities. Eyes widen with wonder as their small boats wade past the idyllic gardens, markets, temples, and palaces of this floating city. A Mesoamerican Venice, if you'd like. Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés and his men are on their way to see Emperor Moctezuma II. Waiting for them at the entrance of the Templo Mayor, Moctezuma observes the foreigners mounted on alien animals in heavy chain metal. Could it be true? The rumor that has haunted this leader of this ruthless civilization for the past months. Is this pale bearded man the long prophesized reincarnation of Quetzalcoatl, god of wind and rain and creator of the worlds? The blue-green feathers that adorn his headdress ruffle and the shells on his elaborate lion cloth clink as he moves towards the proud Spaniard. Welcome, he says, unwittingly opening the door for the rapid collapse of the Aztec Empire. How did 1,500 soldiers conquer an empire of millions? Their decisive advantage lay not in military brilliance or the naivety of the Aztecs, but in a microbe. Smallpox arrived in Mexico with one infected slave from Spanish Cuba and killed nearly half the Aztec population. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today we ask ourselves, why do some civilizations survive while others collapse? Pulitzer Prize-winning polymath Jared Diamond has dedicated his life to understanding the seismic forces that explain human history. In this episode, Professor Diamond talks to Stephen Barber, strategic advisor to the Pictet Group and chair of the Bripicte, to explain his award-winning trilogy of books, applying the insights of science to lessons of our past. Guns, Germs, and Steel, Collapse, and his recent concluding volume, Upheaval. In Guns, Germs, and Steel, you talk about how the playing field of history, or like the playing field of nature, is not level in the sense that North America and Western Europe had geographical and geological and principally advantages, which not given to some of the great southern continents, the continent of Africa and large parts of Asia. And I should mention the Fertile Crescent, too. That's true. My book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, was about the broad pattern of history. Why is it that you and I are now talking English rather than talking Bantu or an Aboriginal Australian language? Why is it that Western Europe ended up with such a dominant position in the world today? And, and this was a question that was rubbed into me constantly when I started working on the island of New Guinea in 1964. New Guineans traditionally had stone tools, they did not have writing, they did not have state-level societies. And I went out to New Guinea naively wondering why is it on earth that these people did not develop metal tools and writing? And it took me about a day to discover that New Guineans are at least as smart 
as Europeans, and they're as curious and they're asking questions. Why do these smart people not end up developing the metal tools? So that was 1964. It took me several decades to figure out what it was in the environment, particularly the biogeographic environment, that gave the Fertile Crescent and then Europeans the advantage. And that was the subject then of my book, Guns, Germs, Steel, how differences as you would say, a non-level playing field around the world in biogeography, that some people inherited the wild plant and animal species suitable for domestication, and then they grew the benefits of those domesticates in increased population density, more food, the background for metal tools and writing in government, and world conquest of today that you and I are speaking English. And then particularly, of course, the the fact that agriculture allowed the growth of settled societies meant that those populations could develop resistance to pathogens, which other societies didn't. And that's, for example, the Spanish when they went to South America. It will be very interesting, I'm sure all of our listeners are going to want to hear what your views on, on COVID. So we'll come back to that a bit later in the, in the discussion. But you showed convincingly that different societies and different nations, no one society was superior to another innately. And that was at a time, you know, in the, I mean, it was when the world was really just emerging from a long colonial history. And I think that you effectively destroyed the whole idea that some people are inferior to others in intellectually or in, in, in other ways than that economic success was not a measure of innate ability or quality. Indeed, and that's one of the biggest questions of human experience. All we have to do is either walk around on the streets of the United States or the UK, or just travel around the world. And we see that different peoples have fared differently in human history. Within the United States, there's a lot of inequality. We have populations from different areas and those populations have different history. Why is it that the government of the United States is predominantly a white government until recently it was without exception a white government when we had originally a significant Native American population. We have lots of African Americans and we have lots of Asian. Why did history turn out that way instead of some other way? When I was growing up, when I was in school, when I was a student in the UK, it was considered politically acceptable to say things that would be considered nasty and unpleasant today about other peoples and supposed differences between peoples. But it turns out that when you give different peoples, when you give New Guineans and Afghans and Somalis and Iraqis the tools, they can do both good things and they can do bad things. So it's a, it's a very serious mistake to assume that other peoples are inferior. And as you point out in Upheaval, uh, about one third of Nobel Prize winners in America are uh, first generation immigrants. And I think more than 40% first or second. That's right. Or if you look at our National Academy of Sciences, the majority of members of the National Academy of Sciences either are first-generation immigrants or are the children of first-generation immigrants. The reason is understandable. The decision to immigrate requires courage and imagination and health and ambition and boldness and the ability to take, the willingness to take risks. But to do the work that wins the Nobel Prize, you have to have courage and ambition and the willingness to take risks. 
So it's mm. not surprising that immigration selects unconsciously for the characteristics that result in good science and Nobel Prize. In the 10th century, a group of Vikings set sail from Norway and settled in Greenland. Here they prospered. They built stone churches, farmed, and traded with local Inuit tribes as well as their European neighbors. But by the 15th century, their society had disappeared, leaving behind only crumbling stone walls. Archaeologists today believe their mysterious disappearance can be attributed to the Little Ice Age. In his book Collapse, Professor Diamond writes that every single Norse ended up dead because unlike the seal-hunting, whale-eating Inuit tribes, the Norse clung to their tradition of farming, raising livestock, and church building. Stubbornness, pride, and an inability to adapt to their environment ultimately starved them to death. As our own climate changes, we need to know what values to hold on to and what to let go if we are to survive. Let's turn to collapse if we can. I think no one who has read Collapse will ever forget the stark account you give of the Easter Islanders, and I greatly sympathize, who consumed all their natural resources in pursuit of a sort of apparently sort of pointless creation of uh, monumental statues and which required large quantities of wood which they burnt and then they didn't have any wood left and they couldn't make boats to fish and so on. It ended up in death, starvation, and even cannibalism. I know this is disputed, I think, by some recent academic analysis, but um, it's a very stark picture you paint, which does make us all think about, is this a picture of, can we extend this to a global scale today? Indeed. A reason why the story of Easter Island so grips us is that the the metaphor is so obvious. Um, Little Easter Island, isolated in the Pacific Ocean, 2,300 miles from the coast of Chile, when they got into difficulty, there was nobody to whom they could turn for help. There was nobody to whom they could look for a model. They ruined their environment, not because they were particularly stupid or incautious people, but because they had the misfortune to be living on a relatively cool island with light soils and low elevation, a whole list of environmental factors that predispose them towards deforestation. Well, here we are on planet Earth, living not in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, but living in the middle of the universe. And if we get into trouble, there aren't any extraterrestrials that we can summon for help. We cannot see how they solve their deforestation problems in the Andromeda Nebula. We have to figure it out for ourselves or fail to figure it out just as was the case on Easter Island. And the difference between, fundamental difference between Easter Island and the world today is that Easter Island could destroy itself and nobody else was affected because Easter was isolated in the Pacific Ocean. Whereas today, with globalization and interconnection between societies, um, societies aren't going to collapse one by one. We've seen that when societies collapse in Afghanistan and Somalia, in go the troops from other countries and it creates problems for other countries. So the risk that we face today is the risk of a global collapse. Perhaps I could bring in the notion of the baseline fallacy. Do you think that was a real trap for the Easter Islanders, as it is perhaps, say, for us today in terms of overfishing and something like that? It was a trap for the Easter Islanders 
just as it's a trap for us today and just as it's a trap for people, for husbands and wives involved in the deteriorating marriage, which is slowly deteriorating and you don't notice it until something happens that blows it up. One talks about creeping baselines, that if things happen slowly in a noisy environment where there are ups and downs anyway. Take the example of global warming and climate change. Today in California, the air conditioner was on in my house all day yesterday because we're having record heats in California and our electric grid is, is overburdened. This is finally getting people's attention. But for decades, the temperature gradually kept rising. But it's not that each year the temperature was 0.3 degrees warmer than the previous year. It went up and then down and then gradually crept up. So it was a creeping baseline. And it meant that people forgot what it was like 40 years ago because there was not a sudden change. For the Easter Island, similarly, it's not that one day they woke up and on Saturday, the island was covered with palm trees, and on Sunday, there was one palm tree left. Instead, this went on over generations and, and centuries. It's difficult to see changes that involve a creeping baseline until it's too late. We could talk for hours about the, the examples you have in, in Collapse, the, the Iceland and the Vikings in Greenland, the Native American tribes that disappeared almost without trace, if it hadn't been for you. <laughs> and But I, just a question on, I'd like to ask about um, Rwanda. You, you look at the Rwandan genocide, and I think that you show pretty convincingly that this was less of an ethnic conflict, a conflict of ethnic hatred, but one that's ultimately rooted in a conflict over natural resources, either shared or depleting. Yeah, Rwanda, the African country that had this horrible genocide in the early 1990s, which is remembered, often stereotyped as an ethnic genocide of, of Hutus killing Tutsis, and then in the neighboring country of Burundi, Tutsis killing Hutus. But if you look at what actually happened in Rwanda, yes, Hutus killed Tutsis, but Hutus also killed other Hutus, and Hutus killed the, the so-called sand people who were at the bottom of the poverty ladder. So it was much more complicated than an ethnic genocide. And why Rwanda? Rwanda is the most densely populated country in Africa. My wife and I were there a couple of years ago. It's a very fertile country and people just packed together. And as population grew, there wasn't land, there wasn't uncultivated land left. This all got into a political explosion, and then it blew up with this horrible genocide where in the course of about five weeks, what, a million people or 800,000 people were killed in simple ways. They were killed with hatchets, and it was neighbors killing neighbors, and it was the kids who played with other kids. It was their parents killing the parents of their playmates. To what extent do you think that conflicts, and not just conflicts, but also um, refugee crisis ultimately stem from a fight over resources or declining or competing resources? Interesting question. Is it the case that all political crises have a background in environmental factors? There are certainly many that do have a background in environmental factors. Growth of population, as in the case of Rwanda, or 
climate change, for example, the turmoil in Iraq. It's argued that the turmoil in Iraq was provoked by drought that placed stress in Iraq. But I wouldn't claim that all political crises have to do with environmental problems because the United States now is certainly undergoing a political crisis, polarization the worst it's ever been in my lifetime. And this is not because of environmental problems. This is instead because of changes in American society and changes in American politics over the last several decades. So I would agree with you that many crises have environmental factors, but not all crises have environmental factors behind them. Just in a transition, I think, from collapse to upheaval, I've never forgotten your, I think it's your concluding chapter, where you break down the steps towards success or failure into does a society anticipate or fail to anticipate an impending disaster? Then does it recognize or fail to recognize when it comes? Then does it act or fail to act? And finally, does it succeed or fail to succeed? And I was so intrigued by this. I drew out a sort of a critical path, you know. And if you do that, you end up with eight possible paths, of which six end in failure and two end in success. How do you respond to that? Well, my first response is that this illustrates why I love having conversations such as the conversation that you and I are having now, because in conversations, even when we're talking about things that I've been thinking about myself for decades, new things come out. It, it never struck me until what you said just now, that the series of steps leading towards societal collapse in the last chapter of my book, Collapse, parallel the series of steps that I discussed in the first chapter, my recent book, Upheaval. In both cases, the society has to acknowledge a problem or fail to acknowledge. Mm. And then having acknowledged, it has to accept responsibility for doing something about it or blaming other people and saying, poor us. And it's got to perceive the problem. It's got to be honest about dealing with the problem as opposed to denying the existence of the problem. So yes, the series of steps in the last chapter of Collapse parallel the series of steps that form the beginning of my recent book, Upheaval, about political crises, not just not environmental crises, but political crises in general. I should, should just say as background to my writing the book was on the one hand, when I reflect on all the countries where I've lived, where I spent much of my life for the last God, nearly 83 years now, all of these countries have had or had had or were going into a crisis. It's not that Jared Diamond living in a country produces a crisis. It's that most countries experience crises. And therefore, the countries that I lived in either were in. I was living in Germany on the day that the wall went up. I was living in Chile a few years before the explosion of the Pinochet coup d'etat. I began working in Australia as Australia slowly began coming to grips with the legacies of its right Australia policy. And the perspective that I bring to bear on national political crises is the perspective that I gained from my wife, Marie, who is a clinical psychologist. And one of her specialties is helping people deal with personal crises, the crises that we're all familiar with, breakdown of a marriage, losing your job, a health setback, death, of it, et cetera, et cetera. There are psychotherapists, counselors who specialize in helping people deal with a personal crisis. If someone's in a personal crisis, you can't spend several years 
exploring their early childhood experience. You've got to help them fast within six weeks because in the worst case, there's the risk of their committing suicide. And so each Friday after Marie discussed with her fellow counselors and therapists how her clients were doing that week, Marie would tell me about the outcome predictors namely acknowledging the crisis, accepting responsibility. And as Marie talked about these predictors, I realized similar factors are the outcome predictors for national crises. But the world, as you say, faces world crises today. The thing that can kill the most people in the shortest time, of course, is the nuclear risk. But slower risks, more likely ones, are climate change going on today and resource depletion going on today and the consequences of inequality going on today. So the last chapter of my book, Upheaval, after a cheerful book about crises in seven major countries, I end with a particularly cheerful chapter about the crises facing the whole world. But I end on a note of hope because I realized, fortunately, in the last stages of writing the book, the world has a track record recently of solving major world problems. And that gives me some hope that we're not doomed, but that we can solve climate change, just as we solve smallpox, and just as we solve the delineation of coastal economic zones, there is hope for us. During the California gold rush in the mid-19th century, Japan, an isolated nation that had long resisted foreign intervention and influence, was forced to open its ports to U.S. ships traveling along the Pacific Ocean routes. Facing the risk of being colonized by superior global powers, Japanese leaders realized they had to become a great power themselves. They accepted some elements of Western society, but remained true to their traditions. They took Germany as a role model for their army and Britain for their navy, but they kept their history and cultural norms intact. The result? In the Russian-Japanese War of 1904, they became the first Asian nation to beat a European power. I have to ask you, um, because you did refer to certainly some of these threats in your 2005 book, how do you think things have changed since then in terms of anticipating, recognizing, ability to act or not act? Since 2005, what has happened is, namely, the threats have gotten worse and worse, and our efforts to solve the threats have gotten better and better. And so things are accelerating. The bad things are accelerating. There are more people placing more stress on the world's resources. That's bad. The good things are accelerating. More and more people are taking the world's problems seriously. Young people are taking the world's problems seriously. Big businesses, which in 2005 I thought of as the enemies of human existence, more and more big businesses, your Unilever, our Walmart and others, are recognizing that these global problems are bad for their businesses as well as for the whole world. And so some big businesses are taking some constructive actions. That gives me hope. How it will all end up? I don't know. I'm not going to see the outcome because we can't carry on as we are now for more than 30 years because of the rate at which we are exploiting resources. My sons will see the outcome. I won't see the outcome. I would say it's very close, but I, I'm cautiously optimistic. I rate the chances as at least 51% that we will have a happy outcome and no more than 49% that we will have a bad outcome. And perhaps one of the causes for hope in them, a significant one, is the generational change, which you just referred to. 
Yes, as an example, a personal example of the generational change. When my children, were, I have twin sons, they are 33 years old now, and when they were in kindergarten at the age of five in the year 1992, those kindergarten kids marched to a public park near my university, University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and those kids marched in a demonstration about tropical rainforests. Well, young people today are concerned about the problems that they should be concerned about the problems because these are the problems that are going to determine whether my sons and the grandchildren of my generation, whether they will live in a world worth living in or whether they will live in a world that is doomed by climate change or resource depletion, or in the worst of all cases, nuclear war. The numbers, though, on the question of uh, resource depletion and energy consumption are quite pretty daunting, I would say. That's right, and that illustrates the unsustainability of our course. It is true that the Americans and British and members of the EU and Japanese and Australians consume on the average about 32 times more resources per person per year than the inhabitants of Rwanda and much of the whole world. By resources, I mean we consume 32 times more fuel. In Rwanda, people take bicycles. The taxis are bicycles. A person sits on the back of the bicycle and someone in front pedals it. There's no consumption of petrol for that. So the consumption of petrol and of water and minerals is 32 times greater in the developed world than in the developing world. There are plenty of Americans who still are most concerned about the population explosion in Africa. And it is true that population is increasing considerably faster in Africa than, than in, say, the European Union, where the indigenous population is actually declining. In Rwanda, family sizes, even nowadays, as much as uh, families of eight. But the, the cruel fact is that the average Rwandan consumes one thirty-second the resources of the average American. And so those 330 million Americans today, compared to Rwandan, what's the population of Rwanda now? What, 10 million? Mm. Or take Kenya population, population, say, 50 million today. There are six times more Americans, but each American consumes 32 times more. So the United States has an impact on the world, 192 times the impact of Kenya. Mm. Forget about population growth in Kenya. Yes, that's a tragedy for Kenya, but the tragedy for the world is the resource consumption in the United States and Britain and the European Union, Australia and Japan. Yes, because you, you compare, I think, the whole of the continent of Africa with Italy. Africa, a continent with... Um, about a population of 1 billion, Italy, 50, 60 million, but of a similar scale. And so even if the African population rises as it's predicted to do, I think in the next 50 years up to maybe 2.5 billion, it's not going to be as significant as action by the large consuming nations. And as you point out, actually, that because if you take... America, China, and a couple of other countries, you can, you can already, you've got a grip on 40 or 50% of world energy and resource consumption. It's even better than that. If one were to get pessimistic by saying there are 215 countries in the world, how are we ever going to get agreement among 215 countries to manage the world's resources sustainably? 
But look at where the resource consumption is. There are five countries that account for something like 62% of world CO2 output, and those are the United States and China and the European Union and India and Japan. And so if those five countries were to reach agreement about, say, production of greenhouse gases, they would be in a position to press their will on the other 40% of the world's population. In other words, it's not a hopeless problem to get an agreement among 215 countries. If one could get an agreement among just five countries, you would have dealt with more than half of the resource consumption in the world. Can we conclude on a note of, I mean, you talked about hope, but can you just give us one or two more examples of, you, you talked about smallpox, but where solutions have been found by nations and governments getting together. Yes, I certainly can end on a note of hope, and it's an honest ending on a, on a note of hope. What is the COVID crisis going to do for us? One's first reaction would be that this is, this is a tragedy, um, and it's difficult to see any good in COVID. But how might the world be different a year from now? COVID, for the first time in human history, we have a crisis that is acknowledged as a global crisis. Countries have had problems before, but this is the first time in history that every country in the world acknowledges that we're all suffering from the same problem. And on top of that, it's clear that no country can solve COVID by itself. If Britain succeeded in wiping out every case of COVID within the boundaries of Britain, but if COVID still persists in Somalia and Mongolia and India, it's only a matter of time before new COVID cases come into Britain. So the world to solve COVID is going to have to unify to deal with COVID as a global problem, to find a global solution. My hope is that when for the first time a year from now, hopefully, COVID has taught us to find a global solution to the global problem of COVID, that may then inspire us to find a global solution to the global problem of climate change and resource depletion and inequality. So my hope is that this tragedy may teach us a much broader lesson that the world has to find solutions to problems of the world. And that's my optimistic note on which to conclude. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Diamond. It's been a real pleasure and uh, an honour to, to talk to you today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your, for your own insights and for the pleasure of talking with you. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Stephen Barber and Jared Diamond. This series is brought to you by the Bicta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrijarras Betayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.